This is part two of um, our discussion, John Kenneth Muir and myself, about uh, the Millennium TV series, which I, I, we both agree was, I think, well done. Uh, probably could have gone for quite some time. And, uh, but, uh, you know, what? Uh, I want to bring John on now. And, John, uh, welcome back, and thanks for uh, coming around for another beating. Thank you for having me on so much, Keith. I'm, I'm enjoying this very much. Uh, and so am I, more so than I, more fun than we should have. Um, <laughs> but you know what I felt bad about is, and I was just taking a look around the other day, uh, we know Millennium only ran three years, three seasons. And another one of our favorite shows, I think I can say our favorite shows, was One Step Beyond, and that's what brought us together. And that ran for three seasons, you know? That's right. And uh, it just reminds me of that song by Southside Johnny. It said, you know, and you cry because nothing good ever lasts. Yep, and, right. and maybe that's the point, though. Maybe that's the best TV. When you try to keep going, you know, it's it, it finally dwindles down, and everybody would like to see a show be put, you know, to death, right, or yep. out of its misery. And and these two that we've spoken about, uh, you know, they left at a high point. I I think anyway. I think so too. You know, there, you risk with TV shows if you go on and on that you sort of outlive the context in which the show was created and you kind of dilute what made it special. And then, and then you know, you're left with a couple of years that you think, ah, oh, you know, and you, you sort of make a separation mentally from the show, you know. Yeah. And with, with shows like Millennium or, or One Step Beyond, you never do. When, it, when it's over, you mourn it because, as you said, all good things come to an end. But they were both at the top of their form still when they, when they died. Uh, uh, one uh, point of minutia, we uh, spoke last time uh, about, well, at least it, it rang kind of familiar in my ear, the name that they gave basically to Satan, or at least a, a, a demon, uh, embodied in Lucy Butler. Right. And that last name rang a bell, and I thought I had seen another movie where the Butler name was used to represent Satan or one of his messengers, and it was in Crossroads, and it was, in fact, Jack Butler. So I don't know if the name Butler uh, has some kind of folklore association going back in time but at least the name butler of course means to serve someone right and we got to wonder if uh the person whom these individuals serve is in fact the evil one right so right. the butler name returns uh embodied by lucy butler and i have to and you'll say the same thing too i, I mean they gave they wrote her a great role and she played it very well she did i, I mean I, I tell you she she makes evil uh, look very sexy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, she didn't overplay it, she didn't no. underplay it, but she played it just to the point where you wanted to reach over and smack her. <laughs> yeah, she, there there was, you know, there was something, uh, it, 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 it was like she knew she had all the yes, cards, that's you right. know, you know, she she knew that, you know, she, she, she her hand was always going to win, I think maybe you said that last time, but she, there, there, there was, there was a confidence, and um, almost a playfulness about her sometimes that you know she she was leading Frank into something that he wasn't going to win. Yeah, and uh, she's in that tradition, I think, of uh, yeah, knowing you have all the cards, being somewhat playful, antagonistic. If, if also, uh, right. that would remind me also of uh, you know the, the Mephistelian characters that we've seen in time, even the one that was involved, you know, with uh, Gerda and right. um, Doctor Faust. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think she did it. She did the uh, the character well, and uh, and she, uh, of course, was introduced in that first season. Now we're into season two, right? And things do take a, a very dark and and larger geopolitically speaking. Um, 
kind of form. Uh, it's uh, it's gotten in more into what you might call the apocalyptic realm, and I'll let you take it away about your uh, take on uh, season two. Well, you're absolutely right. There, there was a gigantic shift um, between year one and year two of Millennium, and that shift originated from the fact that um, two new writers and producers came onto the show, uh, Glenn Morgan and James Wong. And they, they had done their own um, science fiction series called Space Above and Beyond, which was actually, if you, if you look at the show Battlestar Galactica, which just ended, sort of Space and Above and Beyond was sort of that, kind of like Battlestar Galactica. The new Battlestar Galactica took a lot from that show, um, oh, even though it took the name from another show. But there was a lot, there was that show Space Above and Beyond that they did. They also did some of the very best X-Files um, in season four. Um, there was one about an inbred family. It was called Home. This the family called the Peacocks, and they were quite frightening. But uh, these two producers came on, and they became the showrunners, basically, of Millennium in the second season. And the things that they did, uh, they, they ran through a couple of things. Um, they, they reduced the prominence and frequency of serial killers. And as we talked about last week, it was sort of, um, you know, Millennium in the first season had been using serial killers to sort of exposed different facets of the American culture in the 1990s. Well, the serial killers as that device, that was sort of reduced in importance in the second year, and, and the stories became more varied. Um, the, these producers also brought about a change in Frank's personal life. Um, his paradise was lost. He was sort of cast out from his yellow house and separated from his wife, uh, Catherine, uh, after a traumatic first episode called um, The Beginning and the End, I believe it was called. Um, and then the other thing was they saddled, I shouldn't say saddled, <laughs> they joined Frank with a new partner, um, uh, another sort of psychic character. Her name was Laura Means, played by an actress named Kristen Cloak. Um, and, and she was more sort of, how want to say, overtly, traditionally what we expect a psychic to be. Like she would have visions of angels and things like that. You know, with Frank, he always sort of resisted um, the label of being psychic. What, what, what he had was, um, in, this, in the second year, often called a gift, but it, it was also just a way of thinking, a way of insight, a way, the way he would approach cases, um, which, which could be psychic, but it's not what we traditionally think of psychic as in the, the pop culture, like a show like Medium, where you have these you know, visions where ghosts come to talk to you or you know, ghost whisper, things like that. that. That's generally how psychics are looked at in the pop culture. Well, do you so believe, she, John, I think, and they have started with that show as well, because I've looked on some blogs that uh, uh, speak to Millennium and say, look, you know, this is a lot better than what's out there like CSI today. And I think really the role of, quote, the profiler, I don't know if there's any earlier mention of it or uh, shaping of the, the job, if you will, before Millennium. Uh, I don't know, you know, you're much more versed in... in uh, in those things, uh, do we see really the, the, the first appearance of, the, of, quote, the profiler with uh, Millennium? I think so. I, I, I believe it. I mean, there, there might be, a, um, you know, an example here or there, but they would be more obscure. You know, Millennium is sort of the first real, uh, consistent, continuous example of a profiler. And, and, and to prove that that concept was so new and fresh was that, you know, in the first season, when Frank had his visions, what we were doing was getting into his head, and he was thinking about how the killer thinks. But many viewers mistook that as psychic. You know, if you talk to the people uh, involved in Millennium the first season, including Lance Henriksen, it wasn't supposed to be psychic visions. It was supposed to be 
you know, his process of insight. Um, but as they moved into the second season, you know, everybody had interpreted those visions as being psychic visions, and so the series actually adopted that point of view rather than sticking with its original point of view. And, and this often, often happens in television, is that when a new creative team comes in, one vision supplants another vision. And, you know, you can certainly argue, you know, which vision of Millennium, you know, was more true or more interesting, you know, the, the, the first season or the second season. They're, they're proponents of both. But certainly the second year, as you said, really opened up um, the world of, of, of Millennium because we were suddenly delving into the mythology of the Millennium Group. Um, we were looking at their history, you know, across centuries in some cases. You know, they went in search of relics and episodes like Hands of St. Sebastian. They, um, you know, we, we were learning about their their internal schisms. There's a two-parter called Owls and Roosters. Right. Um, you know, we, we were, were suddenly, you know, there wasn't that kind of um, magnifying glass actually on the Millennium Group in the first season. So, you know, suddenly we're seeing that. You know, suddenly we're, we're going into, we're not looking at just serial killers. We're looking at um, all these different philosophies and mythologies. There's, there's Native American prophecy in an episode called A Single Blade of Grass. There's um, a, another biblical prophecy in an episode called uh, 1919, which refers to verse, I believe. There's even um, uh, something very new for Millennium in Season 2, which is suddenly we're seeing humorous episodes like you'd see on the X-Files. And first and foremost of those, there's one called Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense, and it's basically an absolutely caustic parody of Scientology of the philosophy of Scientology, except here it's called selfosophy, you know. And uh, uh, so, so you know, so millennia, it's doing very sort of different things this year um, than it was in the first year, and, and and it is essentially an opening up of the world. But uh, I guess you know, if, if you're going to play devil's advocate, you can say, oh, you know, I love all that stuff. But if you do devil's advocate, you can say too that in some ways it's a it's a step away from what the original concept of the series was. But let me and ask you, might... you this, because I, I, I think what's starting to happen here, too, is there's a little crossover uh, from X-Files into Millennium mm -hmm. uh, with both talent, uh, on-screen talent and also writers. Right. Uh, what I wanted to ask you firstly, if I could, uh, the Lara Means character. Now, uh, obviously things are disintegrating between um, Frank and his wife. Right. Uh, we don't really doubt Frank's virtue, but you have to wonder why the introduction of a female agent, which of course is, is there always with, I would say always, but with many of the, uh, the Fox shows, if you will, and that is uh, Mulder and, uh, uh, what's her Scully. face? Yeah, Scully. Right. And, so now you have a female who actually was in X-Files, was a blonde in X-Files. She, right, she was in an episode called The Field Where I Died, I, I believe, Right. And she was also in that show I mentioned, Space Above and Beyond. <laughs> yeah, and then, now she pops up. And do you believe, uh, do you know, let me ask you, uh, from any kind of research, whether or not that was brought in to kind of like introduce that little bit of possibility that maybe, just maybe, Frank and Lara, eh, you know. Well, I, I think she was certainly brought in for sex appeal, um, you know, to, to have, uh, you know, um, a young, very attractive agent to partner with um, Frank. And, and even in the third season, you know, they introduced somebody else, another very young and attractive uh, partner for him. You know, and I, and I think yeah. what that was 
Well, I know what that was, was trepidation on the part of the Fox network that they were putting all the eggs in the basket of, you know, it's just this one guy, um, you know, and, and, you know, there's not this sort of eye candy around him. You know, Frank Black is a wonderful character, but he's also like the most, the, he, he's the least sensationalistic <laughs> TV character ever, he's you so know. Lugubrious, you know. He, he is. I mean, he, 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 he's wonderful. I mean, he's he's intellectual. He's brilliant. He's direct. He, he's all of these wonderful qualities. I love Frank Black. I, I just love who he is. But you 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 know you can't say that uh, you know he's particularly sensational. And so you know there's this you can just see this drive in the you know seasons two and three of Millennium you know to to place these younger women around him. You know. To, yeah. it, they, they they call it you know in the business like keeping keeping the father's eyes on the TV you yeah. know <laughs> well, well you, you're starting to see Megan Gallagher ca- playing Catherine started right. to be literally faded away right and you know uh, uh, she was such a great I think counterpoint to uh, to Frank because she was a very winsome looking woman you know what I mean mm-hmm. she was like a country girl if you know what I'm saying yep um, and. And, and that worked. And, uh, you know, what I'm surprised, too, is that she kind of disappeared. The last time I saw her, she was like on an Ovaltine commercial. <laughs> so I don't know what happened there. But, but you know, but, I mean, obviously, if she was intelligent, she really you know, had the, the whole nine yards. I mean, that is somebody, you know, that, that, that a male wants for a wife. You know, she's a nurturer. She's intelligent. She's a supporter. She can make it on her own. But now we start to see her role being diminished. Um, and, of course, yeah. at the end of uh, the second se- year, she's killed, killed off. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the writers were finding that there was really no place for Catherine to go in that world without sort of always repeating the same thing. She could just she could be supportive to Frank and say, you know, I'm here for you, baby. Oh, and by the way, Jordan's sick. Come home. <laughs> you know, which, yeah. which she did in several episodes. Or she could do what she did in season two, and she said, you know, the hell with this. I'm leaving. I can't take this lifestyle. But other than those two things, like dramatically, they never really found ways to keep Catherine involved you know, really passionately in the stories, you know, and maybe it was the structure of the show. It was kind of a shame. You you felt that there was, you know, this sense of loss. I mean, they sacrificed this character at the end of year two who had been with the show, and you felt like losing her, it was was sort of a lost opportunity, you know. You're not not sure why it had to be that way. Um, But, I mean, I I, I agree with you. I I think that it it was... um, you know that she was dim- diminished in importance. They, they they sort of tried to find things for her to do, and then just decided, I think that it was hopeless because if you're doing a show that's focusing on the end of the world and focusing on a man who's delving into cults and mythologies and serial killers, you know his his home life. What it's going to be essentially is at the beginning of the episode, he's going to be with his wife. He's going to get a beep on his pager and leave. And then at the end, he'll come back and say, wow, that was terrible. You know, there's not a lot of dramatic she can do. She can get kidnapped or abducted, but you can do that, what, once, maybe twice if you're lucky? You know, you can, she can't be abducted every week. You no, know, they did that once, right. Right, right. There, there's no way structurally and dramatically to make her a vital player. Well, you, know, you raise a good point, though, too, with this bit about having a little TNA, if you know what I mean, with Lyra right. Leeds. And that is, you know, a battle-scored mid-40-something when I was watching that show, uh, you know, I was like, oh, rooting for her because she just seemed to make things good. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, she just she just was kind of like an Earth Mother type that could, you know, so- salve all her all wounds. That prob- I probably don't think like most of America, and I guess to a certain point, uh, that doesn't really 
you know, I like the home flyers lit for a lot of guys out there, especially since I'm sure this was directed to males in a certain demographic. Right. They had to bring on somebody else, and that would be Lara Means, who was, you know, more made up, you know, a little sexier, right. crazier. Sassier, funnier. Yeah, the right. whole nine yards. Exactly. So you feel that that was a move, uh, rightly so, that Catherine's uh, character could not really augment the show any further. You know, it, it's sad for me to say, I mean, you know, if I were to put myself in the shoes of, of, of doing that, I, I, I totally understand why they made the decision. At the same time, I kind of hate the decision. Like I said, where, where else can you take Catherine? You know, where else could you take her, you know, as being, you know, I mean, she, she's the home side of Frank, and that side is always going to be unimportant on a dramatic show. So I hate to lose her. I really, I love the character. I love Frank being married. I love the tenderness he shows her. But, I mean, in a sense, I understand why you want to go with somebody that he works with because that's where, you know, for lack of a better word, the adventure is. You know, Catherine's never going to be in on the adventure, you know, say it no. to say. And, and, you know, for as much as Frank is in control, you almost know that he knows that he's not in control and that he's going to lose her. Right. Uh, it's You almost understand that and through him that, you know, he's, he, she gets forfeited in this whole deal and almost like some kind of a biblical uh, Judas goat, if you will, she uh, she goes away. She actually, in a sense, carries away the sins and goes off to die. Right. I mean, you do get a feeling. I mean, there, there's this sense of, again, you know, I'm going to put this in precisely, but a sense of doom and gloom that hangs over their relationship sort of from the very beginning. It's, it's something about him and something about her and the performance and the space between them that you think this, you know, may not work. You know, you're, you're always led to, you know, you're always thinking that in all of the scenes with Catherine and Frank. Uh, and, you know, so in, in a sense, they brought it to its logical conclusion, um, you know, with her death. You know, I, I don't think it was a dramatic cheat. Um, you know, I, I think it can be two things at the same time. I think they were thinking about how can we give Frank a sexy partner who's eye candy, um, but who brings value to the show. And, and, you know, and how can we, you know, continue that legitimate arc for Catherine where she goes off? I mean, really, all she could do is die. I mean, either that or it's going to be this completely, you know, 1950s, you know, woman who, you know, is at home cooking for Frank. He comes home, they have a meal, she puts the kid to bed, you know, and I mean, you can imagine that wouldn't be a very appealing role for that actress, right? You know, you get on a show and you want to be involved. You want to be, you know, inherently, intrinsically involved in the action. And Catherine, on, you know, on most occasions was not. Um, she And again, I think this speaks in some way to both the brilliance and difficulty of Millennium. I, th I think it's brilliant how it's set up because she's almost more of a symbol than a character, if that makes sense. She, yeah. repre she represents things that are very important. She represents a side of Frank that you need to have. She, she represents, like you said, Earth Mother. She, you know, she, she, she's got all of these things, but, but she, she's more of a symbol than a fully developed character because there was nowhere you could really take her and develop her. Um, and if she know. was if she was all good and all this other stuff, she's also frail. And of course, they didn't hit you over the head with it, though they kind of did. But when they went through um, the intro for the show, even in the first season, and as you uh, had addressed uh, the last time you were here, uh, and that is, uh, you saw a silhouette of someone who looked awful like looked like awful lot like uh, Catherine, right? Uh, slumping and. Uh, that didn't leave you, in other words. You know, you knew something was up there. And, of course, in the second season, as you got closer to, you know, her actual uh, demise, uh, you realized what they were laying in in the first season would come to pass. 
Right, right. It, it, it doesn't feel like it's, it's a cheat. I mean, it's sad because, you know, you like the actress and you like the character and you want, you want Frank to be happy, so you want his wife to, you know, stay alive and be well. But, but it, it doesn't come off as a cheat when she does die because, again, it seems encoded from the very opening credits that, she, I don't want to say, like a lost lamb or something, that she, you know, she's, she, she, she is forfeit somehow, yep. you know. Oh, that's what I said. She's almost like a biblical Ju- a Judas goat. Uh, something that was uh, to um, absorb or take away the sin of, of everything, which is in uh, Jewish law. I mean, and, and then that's why you sacrifice the goat, because right. all the sin has gone into the goat. Therefore, you must get rid of the goat. And that's what she kind of did. She like absorbed the badness and then went off and had to die to take the badness with her. You know what I mean? And, and of course, the you know the absolutely crazy thing about Millennium was that the second season, the the ratings had dropped and. They, the creators of the show, did not believe the show was going to return at all for a third season. So they also killed off Laura, Laura Mean, <laughs> right? you know, the, the the you know the female replacement right. for Catherine. You know, all, you know, goes totally bonkers. You know, and 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 you know, uh, commits suicide basically. Um, you know, so we lose her too. You know, the, the 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 you know everything's wrapping up at the end of Millennium second season. You know, if they had known a little sooner that they had a pickup, maybe they wouldn't have you know killed Catherine. Maybe they would have found something for her to do. Maybe they would have kept Laura Means alive, and then they wouldn't have had to introduce a second young female for Frank to partner with. I mean, but, you know, this is you know, uh, you know, it's always interesting to see how these things play out. You know, I don't think Millennium Millennium suffers from any of these decisions because I think they're all legitimate creative decisions. But it, it's just interesting to see. To, to sort of know what the, I don't know, the politics of, of entertainment are behind the scenes. Uh, another thing about the crossover, and this is the, you know, the last that uh, I wanted to mention about what I considered uh, a little bleed over, whether it was talent-wise or whether it was um, behind the scenes. Um, you talked about certain kind of, uh, they, they finally got into something a little satirical, a little right. departure, and you talked about uh, Jose Chung's uh, Doomsday Defense. Right. Now, was Morgan an X-Files writer? Yes, absolutely. Okay, now let me ask you about this, because this was in just in the same, almost within uh, two weeks of, of that show, and Goodbye Charlie, that was written by uh, Whitley. Do you know anything? Was Whitley a, a, an X-Files writer, do you know? No, I'm not 100% okay. sure on that one. All right, and the last one is, which I thought was really brilliant, brilliantly done, uh, much in the, uh, I guess I would say, uh, vein of... Uh, the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and that was somehow Satan got behind me. Right. Again by Morgan. Yep. And you know, honestly, that one, boy, I tell you, it took the diabolical and humor, combined them both, and it really did work. And in fact, also, you know, it brought back a lot of TV personalities that you forgot about. It had Bill Macy. Mm. Uh, as one of the uh, demons sitting Demon. in the donut shop from Maud, if you remember that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and Richard, I think, uh, uh, Bacalin, does that ring uh, a bell at all? Oh, God, that does sound... Is it, was he in Twin Peaks? No. Uh, Northern Exposure, I think. Northern Exposure, yeah. okay. And then Alex uh, Dakin, Diakon or whatever, I don't know you know how to... Was in Lamentations also in an earlier show, but he's in all... All these guys, including the last one, Wally Dalton, who has like the biggest eyebrows in the business... All these guys were really prominent TV character actors and such, and they were brought back for that scene and it worked. I mean, for that show, and it worked so well. They're such veterans, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, but they, and then of course they go back and forth between the frailties of human beings. It is like a, a Screw Tape Letters 
uh, TV show. And again, that was X-Files and one of the real severe departures from the whole script line, although they bring Frank in at the end and he looks at them and they look at him like they each can see into each other, if you remember, I, you know. Right, yes. No, I, I think that episode, Somehow Satan Got Behind Me, is absolute genius. I, th- I, I think it's genius be- yeah. because it's funny, because what it says about human nature, because it's such a complete departure from sort of the typical episode. But, you know, at the same time, if you were to be watching the first season of Millennium and then somehow you put in Somehow Satan Got Behind Me, you'd be like, what happened? <laughs> this is the same show, right? And, you know, and, and there's this paradox, or this, I, I guess, a, a clashing uh, uh, styles or whatever. Because I'll tell you, and, and again, I, I, I hate to wax uh, melancholy, but my father and a bunch of guys used to get go to Louis Charcoal Pit <laughs> every Saturday morning and chew the fat. And they were there through years until, unfortunately, sickness and death started to take one away one at a time. But, you know, the thing is, that's what those guys reminded me of. And they were kibitzing with each other, just like guys do, you know, older guys do in a a breakfast place or whatever. And yet, all of a you know, they're, they're seen as being demons. And you're trying to figure this all out. And it's just a great, like, contrast. It, it is, you know, it's so funny because they, they are demons, but, but like you said, what you picked up on there, there's something very, oh God, you know, there's just something so human about them, about those characters, you know, there's just something so human, you, you identify with them, and, and yet, you know, there's these representations of true evil, too, you know, it's just, it's very interesting. <laughs> the, the only guy they were missing, John, was, they should have brought in Harvey Keitel. <laughs> uh, and his bad lieutenant guys, right? <laughs> so what's the problem? No, okay. Uh, all right, no, thanks I mean, for indulging me on that one. But uh, yeah, no, we, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I know a lot of people, and I have no idea why. But somehow that episode got rerun a lot in syndication, or it was re- it was rerun more on the network. That a lot of people found Millennium through that show, and and they're like, is that the show with the four demons? You know, and I mean, it's such an yeah. odd. You know, entry to Millennium, and then to see that first, you'd be like, "What the heck is going on oh, here?" But I mean, yeah. it's a fascinating episode. I mean, I, I think it's pure genius. But again, and, and I'm very, you know, this is one of those things that I'm just not very certain about. You know, Millennium is so different from Year One and Year Two, and I, I could argue the case about why Year One was better or why Year Two was better. But you know, that episode is sort of a perfect example of how season two is different from season one it's wonderful in so many ways but yet you say wait a minute is this the same show that started you know they're it, it, it's very different but i mean I, I guess we're lucky that you know to have a show that can incorporate all of these different ideas and you know at the center of it is always frank black and i was watching um the episode beware of the dog uh yep. one of the early episodes that establishes sort of the founder of the millennium group as this old man and a Town. And, and it was a very X Files episode. It was it was very X Files. You know, these, it was these dog attacks. The, the the on the soundtrack there was Carpenters music. You know, the Carpenters over over yeah. a murder scene where dogs were killing senior citizens. I mean, it felt very X Files ish. But at the center of it, Lance Henriksen was still Frank Black. And no matter what was going on around him, whether it was you know sort of the grim reality of the serial killers in the first season, or these more fantastical 
stories of the second season, he was the same. And, and, and you know, he, he is that anchor. You know, and that becomes even more important in the second season because we, we take some leaps. You know, we take some leaps yes. of, uh, you know, we have to suspend disbelief a little bit more. You know, like the episode with the dogs or, you know, what have you. So, I mean, it, it's just very interesting how the show changed. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, you know, we, we, do, do you have a, a preference on seasons or you just feel like, you know, one? You know, it's like comparing apples and oranges, you know? Uh, first of all, before I do that, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity, but I want to tell folks also, this is John Kenneth Muir. Uh, he's been with, on, with us uh, several times uh, in the past. Uh, his first show with us was to, uh, and I'm really, I mean, like, this is in uh, my top ten favorite uh, shows, which will be out in a new e-zine we're going to put out very shortly, uh, and that is um, One Step Beyond. Uh, but anyway, that's where we uh, all uh, got together. Um, over, but um, uh, you can go to his website, johnkennethmuir.com, and, and although I'm going to ask John the second site, and he'll tell you about it, it'll be a link that'll be up with everything else, because that's a blog spot where I guess, is a, a, you know, like all blog spots, there's a bit more of a give and take, and it would give an opportunity for people who may not have necessarily known about that or searched out your site, John, uh, right. the main site, uh, johnkennethmuir.com. Uh, so they could they could get into a little bit of a give and take, and I tell you there are some really great comments in there. Uh, but uh, let me ask you this: uh, I, I know it's long, so just tell the folks what it what it all spells out. The URL for that blog spot. Absolutely, um, my my blog is at um, it's called uh, John Kenneth Muir's Reflections on Film and TV. I, I picked too long of a title, but if you go to um, it's http um, colon uh, you know the two slashes and then reflections on Film and TV at blogspot.com, and okay. and probably the easiest way to get that, because that's a real mouthful, is either to just uh, Google uh, John Kenneth Muir, and you'll go, you can see my blog, or to go to the johnkennethmuir.com website, and there's a link there to the blog, so you and, can uh, find yeah, it there. And I told you we'll put that link up with you also, and uh, maybe we can get the audios uh, together and stuff, and, and folks who are listening to this series would be uh, able to get in touch with you. Um, that sounds and, uh, great. Again, like you had said to me, you threw it to me. I have I have two uh, different feelings toward Millennium. One was before, and I know you'll understand when I say this, and we won't get into it. Before I knew what I knew now, <laughs> watching that show and liking it just on dramatic content and right. characterization, which I still feel is excellent. Yeah. And then secondly, when I watched it again in a box set, when we when my wife and I uh, got it. And then thinking the way we do now, looking at it from that point, and then there actually there's a third. And I have to tell you, it's the most painful, far more painful uh, than the first two uh, viewings. In fact, there was none with the first, there was none with the second. But this one, um, I wish there were more fiction in it as the series went through the second and the third year. So I think what you have is a darkening and a realization of the plot lines, uh, it's almost like John. I would say, although the show is good, there's almost nothing positive that you can retrieve from it. In fact, it is a Titanic, if you will. <laughs> now, what's your thoughts? So you think it, gets, it grows darker and darker? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, and, and just understand something. This this won't mean that much to you, and this is not like an inside joke, and we're laughing at John not at all. But I mean, like I've told folks, sometimes the news is just bad. Right, and in this show, I think they quite they they told you quite frankly. Sometimes the news is just bad, right? And that no, show I, left the scene with that. Uh, what do you think? 
Oh, I, I think that's true. And, I mean, you know, when we get to the third season and talk about how it ends, I mean, you know, it becomes even sort of more grim. And, you know, what, what the final note it goes out on is sort of one, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the the best thing you can do is, you know, grab your child and run. You know, you, you know, and hide from the world because, you know, we've seen Frank Black for three seasons, you know, fight against the machine and, and, He's had his victories here or there, you know. He he he's won the battles but lost the war, you know. And 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 where it comes down to at the end is he sort of realizes what's important to him after all he's lost. And you know, the last shot of Millennium is you know he and his daughter fleeing, um, you know, modern life. Uh, and so I, I agree with you. I, I I do think it's dark. I think though, you know, in the second season they tried very hard to um, to leave in that darkness with humor. But even the humor is dark. I mean the the self. <laughs> You know, the self, I mean, like we said, the Somehow Satan Got Behind Me episode, you know, is very dark. It's demons. And, and the Selfosophy episode, the one that makes fun of Scientology, I mean, there's a constant joke in that. They're saying, you know, don't be dark, Frank. You know, well, you know, tell, they're telling, you know, Frank Black not to be dark, you know, after all he's seen. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is just not possible. So, you know, I, you know, I, I do think that, you know, there, there was a, a choice in the second season to attempt to make it in some senses, more accessible, but they didn't sacrifice the core qualities of the show. I think they were trying to draw more people in, in some senses, with more fantastical scenarios. Yeah. Um, yep. But but it still did go into the darkness. And, you know, one of the things that you can see very clearly in year two, and I love this, I mean, this is the reason I do what I do, is that like Millennium in the first season, Millennium in the second season is commenting on what is happening in the late 1990s. It's, I mean, it's brilliant social commentary, I think. Um, you know, and we can you know, talk about some of these episodes. There's, I don't know if you remember Monster, um, yeah, sure. but it, it's this episode about, uh, you know, accusation, false accusations of child abuse and molestation against this poor little sweet-looking old woman. Um, and... and um, you know, it's it. This goes back to actually something that was occurring in the 1980s and 90s. I, you know, there was this sort of uh, witch hunt in the culture and and false hysteria, you know, about accusations of child abuse and child sex rings. And you know, there was a notorious case in Washington State, I guess, in 1994, where like a foster child like reported her pastor. You know, and by the time she was done, like 43 adults were involved. You know, and and, and it was all proven to be false. Now, that's not to say that all sexual abuse is false or anything like that. No, but you um, also had the high-profile McMartin case, I think, out of California. Right, that right. I mean, the, uh, yeah. This was something that was happening in the culture, and, and what, what the, you know, and again, that's not to say there aren't legitimate cases of abuse, but, you know, what they were pinpointing on was the idea of, of adults putting these ideas into the minds of these children, and the children who didn't really have these experiences wanted to please the adults and sort of, you know, you know spit out what they wanted didn't to hear, except wanted, in the yeah. In the case of Monster, I mean, that the child really was, like, evil or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, and so, that also almost came back on Frank in that episode as well. Right, right. You know, I mean, it, it's one of those things, I mean, you know, chi- I, I think to hurt a child is probably, you know, really the most awful thing you could ever do. Agreed. So to be accused of doing something like that, like, there's no defense. People don't want to hear, you know, you deserve a trial. They want to kill you if they think that's what you've done. And, I mean... I understand that impulse, but but by the same token, it's like, ooh, let's all step back and calm down a little bit, you know. And like you said, it almost came in, you know, the whirlwind almost got Frank in that episode because the passions are so, you know, raised over that issue. And you mentioned Goodbye Charlie, which, 
you know, was looking at euthanasia. And, you know, again, I mean, it was so topical in the late 1990s. There was uh, Dr. Kevorkian practicing assisted suicide. Just, you know, there was that famous uh, 60 Minutes episode, I guess, which was November of 1998, um, where he was uh, performing, you know, the voluntary euthanasia of a man named, I think it was Mr. Yuke or Yauk, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it, it, it had been a, a, a suicide that he assisted back in the September of that year. Um, but are we, talking, uh, are we talking about Kevorkian? Kevorkian, yeah, yeah, and and um, you know he administered a lethal injection on tape, and then that, the tape was used as evidence against him. Yeah. You know, you know, so the the idea of euthanasia, you know, in Goodbye Charlie, uh, you know, was you know all over the culture at that point. Um, also, uh, I think there was a little side play there for those old farts like myself who remember this. Goodbye Charlie was the name of a movie. With somebody who died and came back, embodied, uh, I forget, maybe in the opposite sex or something like that. Uh, I did see the I did see the movie in the movies. Never saw it again, and I'm just working, you know, from memory. And of course, you know, sometimes that I got a pretty right. good one when it comes to this stuff. But I think it, uh, Tony Curtis was in it too, and you know, your basic 1960 Rat Pack characters. But Goodbye Charlie, yeah, was somebody who died and came back and someone else. But what also cracked—I shouldn't say cracked me up. I, well, I thought was. I sniggled over it, and that was the guy who's like the angel of death, right? That that hospital orderly or whoever he was, right? You know, he would sing and, and do like very lighthearted things while he was like basically gassing people, right? It reminded me also of Clockwork Orange. Oh, okay. When when Alex and his droogies would kick the stuffings out of somebody, all the while singing, singing in the rain, right. And by the way, I just want to let you know, this has been lost in time, but Jack, oh, no, it wasn't Jack, it was um, Gene Kelly, who was in Singing in the Rain, you remember? Right. Was apoplectic about the use of that song in Clockwork Orange. Oh, I bet he was. I mean, it was such a contrast. The, I know, you know Gene, the... relax. <laughs> right, right. Stand down, Gene, it's okay. <laughs> but I mean, you had that, you had a satire, which was that show, and then you have, like, again, and, and of course, if you think about it, even Dr. Strangelove, while they're dropping the A-bombs, you know, they play, uh, I'll be seeing you again. You know what I mean? Right, right, absolutely. So it's, it really works, this this supposed contrast with with the uh, the audio, in this case, soundtracks, music, and also the visuals, which are very violent. You know, and, I, and again, I think that's one of the places that Millennium was really trying to develop a more mass appeal in the second season they did a lot more stuff like that like music used much more ironically that's right you know, things like that were it was much more happening of that in in the second season um because i i think they wanted to you know see if they could broaden the appeal somewhat and and those you know those moments are very dramatic and you know and, and sometimes funny you know and it's you know like again i said you know to have a dog you know dogs attacking senior citizens in a winnebago to you know the carpenters uh soundtrack <laughs> i mean you know is that's wicked it's just wicked <laughs> you know it's it's very funny um but it's also very dark too you know um but all, you know, also there was um, you know, speaking of context, all, you know, and I know I'm sure you're aware, you know, of the, you know all about the Zodiac case in San Francisco in the '70s. Yep. Um, there's this. I mean, I think one of the all-time best episodes of Millennium is this one from the second season called The Mikado. Um, you know, in which they basically tell the story of the Zodiac, except they call the killer Avatar, I believe, in the episode. Um, and then and the wrinkle thrown in for the '90s is that this killer who escaped uh, in the '70s is back, but now he's on the internet. 
and um, basically he set up a page uh, where he's going to kill somebody live on the internet, but he's waiting for the, you know, when the hit count gets to a certain number, he'll execute him when he has enough eyes watching him. So, uh, you know, they took this idea, uh, you know, a very frightening killer from the 70s, and then gave him the 90s twist, you know, and there was the fear of the internet. You know, you, you remember all the, you know, all the fears about the internet, you, know, you don't know who you're talking to, things like that, very 1990s kind of fears about, you know, what are you seeing on the internet, you know, are you really talking to who you think you're talking to? Well, it might be Avatar, this, uh, you know, this serial killer. Um, um, no, I, I just wanted to ask you, if, uh, and I know you have your notes and stuff and you know where you're going, but I wanted to ask you also if we saw, uh, and, 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 and be... Um, uh, unpolite enough to tell me if, uh, you got other things to cover, but what I want to just throw out before you know we went too much further was: Do we see what looks like a corruption of the Millennium Group, which we're, wore the white hats, but maybe are not wearing the white hats any longer? Oh, I'm glad you did bring that up. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the season. You know, it, 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 it's a. Uh, um if you look at the three seasons as sort of three separate movements about the Millennium Group, they do go very much from being white hats to ambiguous in this season to downright bad by the end of this season and, and then i mean then they're monstrous in the third season the things i mean they're pretty monstrous here because they unloose a plague on uh seattle basically at the end of uh, the second season but i mean you see them here as secretive as as game playing as uh manipulative you know they they don't help frank and they help frank but you know they, this is the great thing about Millennium, and I'm so glad you brought this up about the Millennium Group. The first episode of the, of the season involved the Polaroid killer from the first year, who is he's, he's kidnapped Catherine, and he you know he, he he's holding her for some purpose, and the Millennium Group knows about him, and they hold back and they don't tell Frank the information about him. You know, I, I can't quite verbalize this, but. If you watch all the millenniums together and you start to get this sort of foggy, overarching theory that, like, all the serial killers, all the things Frank has been forced to endure, the millennium group has done to push him to something. And you get that idea, especially with the killer, that Polaroid killer in that episode. It's like he wants Frank to see something. I feel like he was recruited by the millennium group to capture Catherine, to, to you know, that, that it's some sort of test for Frank. You know, and, and when you, you see the Millennium actually ends, there's a, a closeout episode on the X-Files entitled Millennium yep. that kind of closes out the story. And you see that there is something like that. On The Millennium Group was trying to push Frank into something, into being something, into fulfilling a role different from the role that we think he should fill, which was being the sort of the good shepherd, which would, you know, or, or like I said, being catcher in the rye, you know, where he's, he's helping all the people from going off the cliff. But the Millennium Group is trying to push him into being this other person, into being this person who, who is going to follow their ideology and be the one who brings about the end of the world. I truly believe that, that if you watch, if you watch some of these episodes with that in mind, there's this whole, God, almost subconscious, thing about the Millennium Group doing this yes. to Frank, um, you know, and, and, and I think it just becomes more and more plain. There are certain episodes where you can almost get your head around, around the whole thing and see how it fits together, and then it kind of flips away. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the Millennium Group, you know, is manipulative and, and um, you know, doing, doing terrible things, <laughs> you know, in the second season. They, uh, from, you know, sort of kangaroo courts for Frank at one point um, in one episode, Luminary, you know, where he's supposed to be, you know, they, they make him, you know, jump through hoops and try to pass a test, and 
you know, Frank just doesn't ever, you know, he doesn't ever take it. He doesn't ever really have it. And, and, and you know, his suspicions grow more and more about the Millennium Group from the very first episode because he learns that they knew about this serial killer. You know, in, in season one, you know, the Millennium Group was always the white hat that came in and said, you know, look, oh, we, he, here's this killer's file. Let's go get him. You know, they, could it be this guy? And, and what's great about the second season is that it asks the question, well, how did the Millennium Group know? You know, how, 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 how did they find this? Where did this information come from? And so you get the idea of a very subversive organization with its own agenda working sort of under under the surface. And, and again, that's perfectly reflective of the 1990s. I mean, so many people, um, you know, felt, you know, this was the era of X-Files and conspiracies and, you know, there are all these kind of things like that. So, I mean, it was a sort of perfect reflection of the times, I think. There'll be a, a fourth show. Uh, which I think I would dedicate to asking you uh, that we can kick back uh, certain themes uh, that we, we won't have time to do now or in the third. Uh, and that would be, as we've spoke also, I think there's a foreshadowing in uh, the second year with the Millennium Group about uh, dispensa dispensationalism, which in Christianity uh, is not a good thing. It is uh, It um, speaks to the fact that Christians can like help out God uh, doing things, and that is completely a lie, but that's what we see. We see uh, people trying to take Scripture and uh, just help him along, and I think we see that with the Millennium Group, and uh, there are some exchanges uh, between uh, Frank Black and um, and Peter. What's his last name again? Watts, Peter Watts. And I have to tell you, the mustache thing, you remember I told you about how to yeah. get a rat mustache? That's right. Well, I, I tell you what, um, if, if, when they do flashbacks, uh, and this is especially true in that show, The Fourth Horseman, right. when they do flashbacks of uh, Peter Watts, his mustache is more um, uh, walrus-like right, and full. And it's not the mustache that he has later on. And I, I'm, not going, I'm not going, you know, a long distance here, but I'm telling you, the rat mustache is very indicative <laughs> So he's lost his handlebar mustache, or not handlebar, but, but Walrus mustache, and now it's kind of like this rat mustache. And uh, and I had a laugh because when I saw that, I wanted to tell you about it. And of course, I, in fact, I have now done that. That the mustaches will tell you where it's going. Right, right. The thinner the mustache gets, the the worse yeah, it is. Yeah, and the more rat-like it gets. And you well, know, uh, but but again, there are statements now where actually Watts agrees with Frank that the Millennium Group has gone, shall we say, sour, that something right. has happened there. And what I, what I really hung on was the thing that I, well, the fact that I think is most true, not only in that show, but today, and that is it goes from supposedly being benevolent to control. Right. What about that, John? Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the method by which it uses control is, is sort of the most interesting thing. I mean, it's really a cult. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm just struck by watching it again this time, you know, how they use all the mechanisms of brainwashing and sort of mind control. I mean, look at Peter Watts, how, how brainwashed he is. And, and he has a brilliant, brilliant scene in um, the first episode of the second season where he describes to Frank... Uh, how he was a police officer, I guess it was, or, or was an FBI agent, or something, and his discovery of, the, of the, like this baby boy in a in a cooler, and, and the child had no head, and how he kind of became obsessed with that and with the darkness, and and, and and you know the Millennium Group thrives on 
taking people when they're weak, when they're, when they're at, at their bottom, when they're rudderless. And, you know, and that's when they got him. You know, you know what I mean? Yep. It's like that, that's, when they got, that's when they got Peter Watts. It's when, it's when he was so torn down and sort of defenseless emotionally over this, you know, wrenching case of trying to solve the death of this, of this baby boy that, you know, you know, sort of became a twisted and pathological thing for him to where he thought it was his child, you know, you know, and, and that's where the group came in and got their claws into Peter Watts. And, you know, for me, that's why, even though he, he clearly becomes, you know, a black hat and a villain by the end of the series, for, for me, there's always this sort of tragedy and sadness about Peter Watts, because I don't think he started out that way. I think he started out you know, being a really great guy, and then he got involved in this group, and he thought they were doing good, and and you know, and then that, that becomes that shady line where it's like the ends justify the means. Yeah, well, you know, the, sure, the Millennium Group can do that because we're trying. You know, it's a, it's good. So, you know, if, if they break the law, you know, they have the right motives. You know, and you know that never leads to anywhere good. You know, and, and it doesn't for Peter. Um, and, and you see, I think that the Millennium Group is trying to do the same thing to Frank. I mean, if you look at it's like they're trying to break him down so he'll be pliable enough that they can control him. I mean, that's my feeling. That's that's my philosophy about it. So, well, you know, I, I think it is a. I mean, I, I just think it uses the mechanisms of a cult, and I, I think it's you know it, that that's yeah. really what the show becomes. Yeah, it fits a definition without a doubt. Even though supposedly the group was meant for good, right. we're still dealing with cults. And, and a couple of things I found was interesting and. We'll address that dispensationalism some other time, uh, and you agreed to that, so we'll just let that slide. But what they do is they also revisit the line that the show first started with, and it goes back to, um, you know, the Millennium Group is not content to sit around waiting for uh, a happy ending. Right. Now, that returns, and, and that clanged on my ears because I remember that from the first year. In fact, perhaps one of the first two episodes or so. Right. When they explain themselves. Um, and then... then um, uh, Frank Black says in a discussion you know, with Peter and, and in that dis- and in those give and takes those right. conversations a lot is, is thrown out a lot of stuff is thrown out and in one uh, retort uh, Frank says there is no millennium but that isn't explained as to what he's talking about Right. what is the millennium you're talking about you're talking about that thousand years I mean it's very nebulous also right. you have the introduction of a new new good guy group that trust, remember? Right. And that almost seems to be nipped in the bud, and you can't really tell if they're good guys or not, although you were inclined to think that Frank thought they were good, and, of course, their head is killed in a uh, gruesome car accident. Right. What do you make of that, if anything? Did you did you believe that that group, and it, we're, we're, we're speaking as if there's no third season. Right, right. So <laughs> what do you think about these white hats that ride in? Well, you know, I, I think that Millennium... Is such a nuanced show and it has such a sort of nuanced worldview that e- even if the trust had played a larger part, you know, Frank, I think, would always be the epitome of, um, you know, what Woody Allen said and Annie Hall, you know, he, he would never be part of any group that would have him as a member. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, he, I think, you know, he, he was burned once by the Millennium Group because I think he thought they were white hats. I think. You know, and 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 they turned out not to be. And I think the trust might have looked good on the surface, but 
you know, what what really were their motives? And and you know, the more and Frank is a digger and Frank is a truth sayer. And you know, I think the more he sees of these groups, the more he sees they're not a good thing. And you know, I love that he said that there is no millennium. You know, to me that's right because you know any dates that we set are artificial. They're based on calendars that were made, and you know they don't mean anything. So you know, tell me when did the millennium change? Was it the night? Was it the midnight from 1999 to 2000, or was it the midnight from 2000 to 2001? You know, it, when is the millennium? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I do, without a doubt. And, and let's let's uh, look back at this, and, and that is there was this whole Y two K freakout. Yeah. Which was really computer-based, and that's why I think a lot of people gave it some credence, like, okay, is this going to make all computers go catawankas? Right. If you're looking at it for some spiritual slash religious slash occult meaning, then your millennium does not change at 2000, but it changes at 2001. Right, right. Because 2000 belongs to the other millennium. Right. Right. And, you know, there was even a year one episode where where there was sort of an end of the world uh, uh, prophecy, and that was like coming in 1998, you know? <laughs> it's like, so, you know, it's, it, you know, I think Millennium was clever to kind of delve into that area because what Frank was saying is, you know, you all have convinced yourself that the end of the world is coming and you've assigned this arbitrary date to it, but why? You know, why, why, right, exactly. why does it have to be there, you know? It's like um, when we were in high school and college, and, and any histories uh, courses deal with this, and I understand they have to do it for a brevity, I guess, whatever, a clarification. But, you know, you don't have eras starting at, like, 1952 and ending in 1958. They, right. There's a blend in, there's a blend out. Absolutely. There's no hard lines, but for the purpose of left to right, linear, A to Z, right. explication, you have to have things starting here and ending there, and that's not the way things go. I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm absolutely guilty of that as well as a as a scholar who writes about you know just about things as simple as television and 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 horror films. You know, that you know I, I block off certain years as being you know like the era of the dark superhero or the era of this or that. But are there dark superheroes after that era? Yes, <laughs> yeah, you know. But you're right. I mean, it, it's an organizational tool. It, it, it's it's a way to for you know for scholars who are interested in learning it's a way to organize and disseminate information now for a cult it's a way to control information it's a way to present and control information i hope i don't do that <laughs> but, but but you know you it certainly is a way to do it it's a way to view history it's a way to view where we've been and where we're going you know to say it's the end of a thousand years. Well, you know what? Today is the end of a thousand years. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, a thousand exactly. years ago began when a thousand years ago. That's right. Hey, so, I mean, what, what does that mean? It's the end of a thousand years. I mean, nothing. You know, I mean, no. we, we, we've been around for a long time. You know, what, why why is the year that ends on 2000, you know, at midnight 2000, you know, the last day, you know, why why is that 1,000 years significant and it's not 1,001 years or no. 1,005 years? You know, it, it, it's all about controlling the information flow and, and making people see it the way you want them to see it. And, and, and talking about control, I want to bring you back to, and we go a little longer. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. All right, thank you. Really, thank you. Oh, my um, pleasure. That's fun. One of the problems, I mean, in the last two episodes... And, of course, the last episodes in Millennium, I guess maybe in any show that serializes, they, they give you something very heavy to ponder and keep you around for you to, you know, for you to, to, to uh, be ready for the, the next season. And as you said, there was no real indication that it might be a third season. However, right. Right. some of the stuff that Frank said, I mean, was really heavy duty, uh, especially for my listeners also who realized that, even in this, in the real world of politics and stuff, there is much 
uh, illusion. And Frank said uh, in one uh, response, as I said, with these really key uh, give and takes with, uh, with Peter Watts, he said the Millennium Group is an illusion. He said it's a diversion. It's a distraction. It's about controlling the world. Right. And I mean, whoa. Yep. Very, very heavy. Right. Uh, sort of like the war on terror, right? <laughs> well, you got, you know, honestly, John, you take a look at it. What's what's the uh, the upshot? Uh, control over the population, which is, pre, you know, is for the most part pretty peaceful. Right. We all get, you know, uh, painted with this uh, broad stroke, and all you've got now is more control without any real reason to believe that, mm, that the terror was necessarily from without. Right. Uh, but, but I know, you know, we'll talk about that another day. And, and that last series, the time is now. Yep. There's an earthquake that ends the uh, the fourth horseman episode, and you come back into the last episode for that year, I believe. The time is now, mm-hmm. and I think he I think he actually tells Car- uh, Catherine they uh, the Millennium Group projected to a T, or predicted, if you would, the earthquake. Right. Uh, and so. You see Frank wanting to go over to the, the new white hat wearers, the trust. But that guy gets gas in a gruesome car accident, and now he feels he has to go back to the millennium. And uh, he tells Catherine why. But what I find really very, very, I mean, like, whoa, was when Frank explains why he wants to stay with the millennium group, Catherine turns on him and says, that's the exact, exactly the way I feel about you. Can you speak to that at all, about that exchange and whether or not, you know, to me, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Catherine, <laughs> well, I, whoa. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think what it's saying, you know, is something that Millennium said a little bit in the first season and, 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 and which we've lived through. I mean, we, we've lived through it for a long time, but we've really lived it the last eight years, which is that the people... I'm, I'm, you know, I may phrase this awkwardly. Speak freely. Don't worry. About the, the, the the people and organizations that we are supposed to respect and look to for guidance, um, what they're actually sending out is fear. Um, you know, is this culture of fear? You know, yes. early in Millennium, in the first year, you know, Frank talks about the the culture of fear in America in the 1990s, and that's kind of funny in retrospect today because you know the culture of fear in the 90s ain't got nothing on the culture of fear today. You know, after 9/11 and you know everything that's happened, you know, it, it's been ramped up, you know, to this incredible degree. This culture of fear. I mean, it was there in the 1990s, but but today it looks almost quaint by comparison to how we feel. And you know, I think. You know what what fear does is you know when you're scared you 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 go to the people who you think can help and and what you do is you you give yourself over to those people That's you right. say protect me you need to tap my phones tap my phones I don't want to die you you need to you know we need to invade a country you just to save me invade a country you know do it you know you, we need to torture people. So do we get the terrorists? Torture them, because I don't want to die. You know, I don't want my life to change. I want my Starbucks and my malls. You know, all right. <laughs> I, I, I want, you know, I want all these things. So when 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 somebody is is selling fear, and you go to them, they have you because you're willing to give up anything, and they then pat you on the back and say, "Now, now, we'll we'll take care of you." And, you know, and what you're surrendering is your liberty for this false sense of security. And you know, there, I think that that impulse in Frank was. They 
the Millennium Group accurately predicted an earthquake. They must know something. I need to go to them. You know, I, and what she, and I think what Catherine is saying is, is sort of the same thing. Is that you know I love you, but I'm afraid of the world around you. And when and, and when I do go to you, you know I live in that fear. You know because of the world you live in. You know, so I, I think it's a very um, interesting comment about uh, about the culture of fear and what happens when you give yourself to fear. Well, well you know, more accurately, that what happens when you give yourself to agents who are selling fear. Um, and you and you're not analytical, and you don't you don't ask why. <laughs> you know now, wait, why do we have to torture people? Now, why do we have to invade a country right. that didn't attack us? Now, why? You know all, all those things. You know, we 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 are so blinded by the fear that we go to the people who are actually generating the fear and ask them to protect us when they'll be the last people that are really who really care about our self and you know our own interests. They care about themselves. Well, uh, folks, I didn't go to him into saying that. <laughs> he came upon that by himself, but I think, John, you're starting to understand the program. <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly astonished by people who will defend, like, the last eight years and what's happened in America. I mean, I think anybody with their eyes open, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on, you, you just have to be absolutely agog at what's happened here and what you've seen, you know, our, our, our government do. Uh, you know, again, I don't want to get political. You know, again, I, I think people, any, I think anybody who lived through the last eight years and, and had their eyes open and, you know, wasn't checked out on drugs, is going to say, you know, we, we've lived in a culture of fear, you know. A, a, everything was related to fear, you know, even elections. And listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you John Kerry was the greatest man who ever tried to hold office, but I am going to tell you that it, it was pretty rotten for people to say if you elect him president, there are going to be mushroom clouds in American cities. I mean, what is that selling? <laughs> you know? no, you're, you're right, though, again, fear as the motivator. Exactly. You Just, know, I mean, it makes your point clearly. To, 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 like on the most, you know, the most American thing, like the right to vote, you know, that to go out and vote, and your vote counts, and, and you know, you have people in authority telling you if you vote for the other guy, there are going to be nuclear bombs detonated, yeah. and you know, I mean, that's that, that's despicable. I mean, if it, if the parties were reversed, I'd say the same thing. I don't want to be misperceived as being, you know, um, one way or the other. I, I, I just think, you know, anyone who is conscious in the last eight years has to have seen this. No, no doubt about it. And, you know, and regardless of party, uh, that is the modus operandi, and that is fear is a great motivator. It no is. Doubt about it. But let me ask you also, because, um, and believe me, we'll, we'll make you a convert before this whole thing is over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's something you introduced, which is very key, very key. And I'm telling you what, Chris Carter knew what the deal was, and, and, and like we'll save that for a fourth show. With all the, the excess baggage and everything, we'll do that in a fourth show. However, let's let's cut to the chase, and that is, they introduced something that would eventually become a very real fear. Quote there again, fear, which mm -hmm. never eventuated, and that was the plague thing. Right now, let me just say this: we know in the decade of 2001 onward, we had the Ebola thing, we had mm -hmm. the uh, oh, what was the chicken thing? Yeah. Oh, the avian flu. Right. All this stuff. Uh, and I'll speak to that later. But anyway, we did eventually have the introduction of this as a fear without results in um, all around the globe, but especially in North America, which had nothing. Uh, but but the Millennium Group, and uh, you know, again, now we have them starting to wear their black hats, and it's understood that the Millennium Group decided to release a plague. Do you want to speak to that, please? Right, right. No, it's you know, we learned that. 
you know, the Millennium Group is, you know, these are all people who are living essentially for the end of the world and that they believe that, I I guess, that, you know, after the world ends, you know, that they'll be in control. So they've come to the point where they want to make it happen. You know, it's it's somewhat what you were talking about earlier in the the philosophy you were discussing, which I know we're going to get to. But, you know, they, they release a plague, and I have to say, I wrote about this in Terror Television. This was one of the most horrific things I have ever seen on television. It really? is this is the destruction of the American nuclear family. It's like a Sunday get together of a happy family. They're like cooking chicken out. They're talking about football games, but but the the plague has That's been true. released, yep. and they all bleed out at the Sunday dinner table. The, the, you know the, the, they they all sweat out blood and literally bleed out all you know. Uh, you know, all, all, their whole blood supply out. You know, at the dinner time. I mean, it, it is. This is such a powerful and you know shocking image. You know, to to take this these American icons like that. You know, the Sunday dinner, the family. You know, even have football in the conversation, whatever they were talking about, and, and then destroy it like that. I mean, it was. I mean, it was gory. It was shocking. I mean, it, it still rocks me back on my heels when I see it. And there's a sense sometimes in this in Chris Carter's world, that they're preparing us for something. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you can't escape that. I mean, it's wonderful entertainment, but it's also, I mean, this speculation about what's going to happen. I mean, if you look at the lone gunman episode which we talked about, which forecasts the World Trade Center uh, attack, um, yep. and, and and this, I mean, and then you look at what happened. We had, as I said last time, we had the anthrax attacks. I mean, was that a... You know, was that a test run? Was that a dress rehearsal for a bigger attack like that? Were they testing, you know, being able to poison us through the mail? Was somebody, you know, you, you don't want to go nuts with that, but you get the feeling, you know, from Millennium that we're being prepared for something, you know? I want to say, too, um, that uh, after that, uh, long after that, we had the, uh, the Ebola scare. Uh, and I'll, I'll speak to that in a second, if I could, uh, just as an addendum to this. But also, uh, we had the uh, the bird flu thing and right. the SARS. Yeah, and, and the bird just, flu still rears its head. I mean, that it's going to happen. Well, you know, here again, I mean, they they freak everybody else out. But I would ask people also to go to go to your local library and go back in their archives for the Newsweek of May fifth, two thousand three. I want you to look at that cover. This is a supposed reputable uh, periodical. And on the cover is a nurse. Um, it's, it's a close-in shot. Her eyeballs are absolutely, you know, expanded like, uh, you know, somebody stuck something up her butt. <laughs> and also the title, I mean, the, uh, the, the uh, front page um, headline is SARS, What You Need to Know, The New Age of Epidemics. This was May fifth, uh, two thousand three, and they were freaking everybody out. And here we are. Right. Uh, the reason I bring this up, John, is because we talk about fear of the generation of it, and right. also keeping it out there and prodding it whenever you have to keep the population in control. Now, could this be loosed? Of course it could, but is it organic? Uh, no. But that's another thing that brings us into the realm of, uh, you know, sleazy geopolitics. Well, you know, it's it's very interesting that the time that that's from is from May of 2003, which was when we were first beginning to get the inklings that um, we were not being greeted as liberators, shall we say? In Iraq? 
in Iraq? Right, because the invasion uh, began in March of 03, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, Thanks for blowing our place up, but, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, it, you know. so it might be that, uh, you know, this, this was information that was coming out at a time where, you know, there would be certain people who really didn't want us to be focusing on Iraq at that moment. That you know, let's have a let's have let's have the next boogeyman. Let's be focused on this, you know, um, because we don't want to be focused on um, what's happening in Iraq. If we see that, people are going to be upset, you know. Um, so you know, you wonder if the timing of that, you know, I mean, it's perfect. You know, I do wonder how these things often come out because I I remember in the 1990s for a time, it's like every news show was talking about asteroids hitting the planet. It's like I finally had to turn off. You know, I said, okay, no more Dateline, no more 60 Minutes, no more 48 Hours, because I can't live under the constant fear that, you know, an asteroid is going to, you know, wipe out all life on the planet. <laughs> you know? No, it's, it's, it's true. But, I mean, as you have stated, and as, as we've uh, corroborated, even in real life, and that is fear is a great motivator. Yeah. And even as we look at these economic times, everybody is understandably, to a certain degree, fearful. Right. And then what happens if it all breaks down? Who do you run to? And that is the controller, yeah. the state, with capital yeah. T, capital S. And the reason I, I, I mention that, you know, without going into a debate about that, but going back, that is the thing I think that um, Frank Black and Peter Watts are, are hashing out. Right. And it's like, this is about control. Don't lie to me. Right. And then, of course, Peter says, well, it started off well, but it got, you know, jaundiced somewhere, somehow. Well, it's it's like layers of the onion. Yep. You know, you, you you go to the onion. You know, you go to some place like religion or the state because you need comfort or safety. But then you find out that the religious, you peel back a layer, and the religious, you know, what you thought was spiritual, is actually a way to get your money. <laughs> you know, or you yep. you know you find you know more and more you know the more you peel off, you see that like what seemed like the good intentions at the outset have been just like you said, jaundice. Um, you know, and, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of our institutions are that way. And um, you know, I, I, you, I, you know, I don't know if that's just human nature or what. Um, I, I'd certainly like to, you know, I, I'd like to see more transparency um, in a lot of things. And you know, at, at least one thing, you know, that, that, you know, and, and you know, I know there are a lot of conspiracies going around right now about about our new president. And you know, for for me. I at least know one thing, which is that they've changed the Freedom of Information Act <laughs> to, to to allow people to, uh, to, on the assumption that things shouldn't be secret. I don't know. Maybe that's a place to start, you know, rather that things should be secret. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I feel like we always have to have hope at the start of every administration that things are going to be different, but they, they rarely are, if ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Having said that, I won't, I, won't, I won't touch that right now. But, but I mean, again, um, as we leave uh, the second season, what's sad in, to a certain extent, and also prophetic, and then it's when we have Catherine dead, we have Frank going gray. Right. Uh, you know, and Jordan is like the conduit between both, that little hope that, you know, life goes on. Right. Um, uh, both uh, realistically and also... Um, shall we say figuratively, uh, not an uncommon icon that you would have she as a lynch point between right. that which was and that which is coming. Uh, also, with the monkey virus and all that other stuff, it does relate clearly. Uh, take my word for this, but you don't have to. <laughs> and that is that the AIDS uh, um, virus was manufactured. It was a depopulator, John. And that this whole bit about monkeys, you know, blah, 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 uh, 
was just simply a canard, a foil for the reason why it struck the populations it did. But oh. have that be that as it may, uh, and you don't have to buy that. That's for another time. But the thing is, is that it's so interesting that the monkeys would be used for that, and that also would be uh, Jordan's uh, prophetic dream. Right. No, I see what you're saying. All those flashes that we see. Exactly. Well, you know, I do know that in it tends to be in horror film or horror television, the children always sort of represent the future and sort of the ability to imagine either a much worse future, and you, know, you can look at movies like and from the 70s like It's Alive or The Exorcist where, you know, innocence is corrupted, um, you know, or a better future. And, you know, Jordan seems to be the promise of a better future. You know, you, you seem to think that she might be able to integrate more her her visions with her, you know, with, with who she is, things like that, you know, you know, and I don't know. It, it would be interesting to see what, you know, they, they should do a series with her, <laughs> you know, as an adult, right? Yeah, I took a look. She's like 19 now. Right, right. And I, and I think there is a fan-created series of, like, uh, independent movies about her, you know, after the Millennium as a grown-up sort of in search of her father and what happened with the Millennium Group. And, you know, I, I don't know for sure. I, I, I'm only sort of on the fringe of that, but... um you know, she's very interesting, you know, and I think she represents, you know, the future and uh, certainly, you know, hopefully a better tomorrow. But certainly Millennium Season 2 ends, you know, they didn't know they were going to get a pickup. It ends with the end of the world. I mean, we That's should right. make no I bones know. about that. You know, Season 3 rewrites that ending so that the series can continue. It says, oh, well, the plague was limited to, you know, 40 people in, you know, Seattle. But let's be clear, the the ending of Season 2 is Apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, Catherine dies, the plague is released, um, and, and, and the world pretty much ends. And the Millennium Group were the ones who caused it. You know, so, you know, it, it, like you said before, you got to pretend the third season doesn't exist because for a while that, you know, and, and just look at that story that was being told in the second season, you know, that, that's, that's what's happening. You know, we're going to the end of the world, to this, uh, you know, this cult with, um, you know, with its fingers and power, um, you know, working against the citizenry. Uh, for really what is a, um, you know, radical ideology. Uh, we've been speaking with John Kenneth Muir, uh, who's been a, well, not frequent, but a, a prominent guest on uh, the show. And uh, we've been talking most recently about the Millennium Series, which is, you know, uh, John, you've been on uh, to talk about some fun stuff, uh, right. you know, one, one Step Beyond, which I think was an excellently produced show, mm -hmm. uh, and also horror stuff and, and Halloween stuff. And here we are, we're kind of like uh, melding the two. We have entertainment value, obviously, with Fox, which is an extremely interesting network, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and also, you know, uh, the field of fiction, which you can argue really isn't fiction. And, and, and I, I just want to ask you this. Uh, as outgoing, uh, you'll be on for another, uh, at least another show, and I think probably a fourth, when we can get some feedback and, and address a lot of other issues going on. But uh, did, you, did you ever give thought to the fact uh, about uh, that, that Fox uh, put out X-Files, uh, put out Lone Gunman, put out uh, Millennium? And I'll leave it right there. Uh, to me, they were probably... You know, although shows get a little old, we think that probably X-Files stood around for a little too long. But that these were shows, I think, Christmas, I think they were excellent. Oh, I do too. Uh, you know, I mean, have you ever had any contact with or uh, any chance to fathom 
who the powers that be would be, uh, you know, uh, there. And, and, that, and I'm thinking about Chris Carter. Right. Uh, these are extremely interesting characters and I think extremely plugged in. Um, any thought about who they were and, and what they lent to the shows that they provided, which I think were gold standard? Oh, I, th- I think they were too. You know, it's very interesting. I mean, because you know, certainly we 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 have the general sense. Let me just say that you know that Fox, at least in its news division, is very biased, and you know it's it's got ties. You know, certainly going to the Nixon administration and uh, to the Bushes and you know senior and uh, junior. So you know, um, but but you know, I I don't know that that extends to the entertainment division. You know, I may, maybe I'm being naive to, to to think that. I you know I I what I honestly feel. You know, and, and again, this is just me. Is that you know, Fox is in the business of making money, and what what they were able to tap into was someone who could make them a lot of money. That uh, you know, Chris Carter with his intricate uh, you know labyrinthian um, meditations on you know uh, what we what we believe, what we don't believe. You know, what's going on in the corridors of power, conspiracies. You know, they tapped very much into the 90s. They tapped very much into the zeitgeist of the time, and they, you know, they made Fox money. And when they stopped making Fox money, Fox cut them off. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I just tend to look at it that way, is that, you know, it, it, it was a way for Fox to make money as long as it did, and when it stopped, it stopped. Um, you know, at some point, the 9-11 zeitgeist, I like to call it, you know, basically sort of rendered... Uh, you know, X Files obsolete. You know, and suddenly we were into the era of another show on Fox, which was Twenty Four. You know, which is sort of the the carrier of that legacy. It's sort of yeah, the zeitgeist right. show right. yep. of the last eight years. And that just says to me that you know, someone at Fox Entertainment, you know, is very canny and very skilled at you know, <laughs> I don't want to say about you know, picking up on what's in the water. <laughs> you know, know. <laughs> you know? know, but but it is. All right, we've been talking with John Kenneth Muir. Uh, again, uh, his links will be up on my site. You have both his home uh, page uh, and also his blog uh, page, and we'll have that there. Um, I, I really do thank you uh, for coming on and speaking to this because this is the one time, I think, uh, with all the topics that we've discussed and those we might in the future, where you do have a very heavy uh, overflow uh, crossover from that which we would wish to be strictly fiction into what might be very much real life. And that's a tough one, but uh, but that makes, I think, Millennium and some of the shows on Fox, birthed by Chris Carter, all the more intriguing. Well, I, I think so, too. I mean, you know, to, to think about, you know, I mean, his whole X-Files movie was about FEMA being organized as a mechanism to be a, a, a government in the event of martial law. I mean, that was what the, you know, the conspiracy of the X-Files ended up being. And, you know, certainly with what we've seen in some of the things with FEMA in the last couple of years, it's been, you know, it's very interesting. It's just very interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I think Chris Carter is a genius, um, and, and, and I think his writers are very good. And, and I think the key to the success of something like Millennium in its second season and first season and X-Files is that idea that there is there there is enough of it that we recognize as if not proven truth at least suspicion <laughs> of truth you know we yeah. recognize these things you know we do we do we recognize these things as being 
this is who we are, you know, and uh, and because of that, they're they're tantalizing. I mean, they're tantalizing shows. I mean, I don't want to sound like a freak, uh, but it's you know, I mean, I have actually laid in bed after watching Millennium sometimes, and and tried to connect the dots in my head. And listen, I, I I'm a guy who's very pragmatic. I, I I know that you know they probably had to do some episodes just to pass the time. You know, they 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 had off weeks, like everybody has off weeks. But you know, I sit there and I think there's there was a grand plan. You know, behind all this, that you know, there's there's the key to Millennium that we can unlock, and, and you know, that's why I've enjoyed this with you because, you know, that that's what makes these shows so fascinating is that you know we we unlock them and and, and we see the treasures and the mysteries within. Um, it's it's fascinating. John, you're absolutely right. Honestly, goodness, you are, and uh, and we'll make you a devotee after the next episode. <laughs> but I, I think we can agree, though, really. Uh, that this was an exceptional show. Yeah. Uh, in its brevity, it still is. In fact, yep. probably because of its brevity, it is monumental. Uh, yep. It's great, great uh, TV, film-like TV. We've said that. And I would encourage people, uh, you know, honestly, to, uh, if you want a really good entertainment and intellectual t- entertainment, uh, the Millennium Series would not be a poor investment. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely! I, you, you know, there's there, there's no better way, uh, entertainment-wise. You know, you're talking box sets that to to delve into Millennium full bore and 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 sort of watch this world open up to you. It's it, it really is amazing. And and also to address uh, your question earlier on about the seasons, uh, to me, uh, some people think that two and three uh, got more uh, fatuous or whatever. Uh, but I think two and three, uh, as far as I, you know, from my viewpoint, right. became more pointed in what they were trying to alert people to. Some would call it a conspiracy theory, but uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, our lives and the time that is to uh, come will bear out whether or not it was uh, fiction or just uh, futuristic projection, right. as it may. Uh, right. John, listen, uh, thanks for coming on, and we're going to do a third and, and a fourth. And in the fourth, I'd like to, after all this is done, and we might get some feedback on it, and not just talk about a lot of stuff that loose ends, which uh, I don't want to encumber uh, these shows about, because they are more about the particular seasons. And we've right. set up what is going to be season three, which I would think is like, you know, wow, you know, even more dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, All right. it's been my pleasure. All right, uh, uh, John, thanks a lot, folks. Uh, you can uh, access these shows, obviously, by going to uh, the site and uh, clicking on both uh, the audio and also his home site and his blog site. This has been John Kenneth Moore. This is uh, part two in a Millennium series. We thank you for being with us. <laughs>